bitch is bad and bullshit. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erin. And I'm Erica. And Amy is missing in action today. She had some other commitments. Yes. Which is totally fine because really this was just a conversation between you and our guest. That's right. So uh, Erica was joined by a guest or will be joined by a guest in our next segment um, for Black History Month. And I just sat here listening intently. Well, we talk, we will talk a lot about... um, Honestly, the way I wanted to structure this was that I wanted to give more instruction and aspiration to and to black women out there and especially young black women who are starting off their careers because as you guys know, my my primary interest is black women at work. So I wanted to make a black women at work Black History Month special pod for bad and bitchy, um, just because everybody else is going to be doing the historical stuff. I mean, that's great and it's necessary, but I really wanted to have a conversation that provided some level of value and gave you some ideas and tips and and made and honestly gets you paid. <laughs> Get money. It, there's a there's a lot about getting paid in this interview, <laughs> and I feel like after we talk so much about the gender ga- gap and the gender gap as it pertains to Black women especially, let's give some advice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was really interesting because what you what you didn't don't touch on, which I think might be interesting to talk about later, is kind of imposter syndrome. Yeah. And imposter syndrome, we talk about women and, I guess, also millennials having a lot of. Um, so I think that might be an interesting yeah. intersection to, to discuss later because the intersection of, like, imposter syndrome and race. Yeah. 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 Like, are, are racialized people more likely to think that they're not worthy of something? Well, that's why, you know, the discussion of pay was is, is very interesting to me because... Um, I think our guest touched on that. We touched on that tangentially. Yeah, yeah you don't necessarily refer to it as imposter yeah. syndrome. Yeah, yes. exactly. But yes. there is that feeling that you're not worth getting paid X, Y, and Z and how white men don't have that issue, mm-hmm. really. Because they have been raised to expect certain things. Yes. Um. Cool. So just... Before we turn to the interview, if you want to become a patron of the podcast, get our newsletter, get advanced um, access to our bonus podcasts like this one, uh, patreon.com slash badandbitchy. And there's also some other fun things that we'll be putting up there soon, like some exclusive Patreon content. So stick around for that. And uh, next we'll have Erica's interview with Metro News columnist, Vicky Mochama. So today we have a very special guest on um, our special episode for Black History Month on the Bad and Bitchy podcast. Hello, Vicky Mochama. How are you? I'm good. How are you? 
I'm great. You know, I've been wanting to actually get you on the pod for a bit. And just because I've been following you ever since you were back at Canada Land. And yeah, it's been a while. I've been silently, maybe secretly stalking you just a little bit. I'm just saying, I'm just putting it up. I feel like whenever, whenever people say they're like, I've been watching you since Canada Land, I feel like... You ever feel like, you know, when you're, like, a teenager and you had your little teeny blog and someone's like, I've been reading your blog since yeah. you're 15. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, oh, wow, people actually saw that? That's cool. Yeah. And I, and you had, you had a newsletter, too. I did. Um, no, not sorry or so not sorry, something like that? Not sorry. Yeah. Are you still writing a newsletter of any kind? No, I, I really wish. I loved, I loved writing a newsletter because I got to be rude about people and then they had to read it directly in their inboxes. <laughs> but I, I actually don't. I don't have the time. I wish. Yeah, because right now you're the national columnist for Metro News Canada, right? And co-host of Safe Space, the current affairs yep. podcast. And yes, I am. So, okay, first of all, are those your main two hustles? You know, that's what pays my bills uh, and gets me fresh flowers every three weeks when I can remember. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'm constantly hustling other stuff. So I write a column for the Toronto Star, um, constantly freelancing other stuff. I am a fairly regular panelist on CBC Sunday Scrum, and I do a bunch of sort of radio gigs around town as well. Mm-hmm. Um, really just just seeking all the attention I can possibly get. Yeah. You know, the fu- okay, so on my um, personal Facebook, so I got obsessed with official Bonnet Chronicles over Christmas. Do you know that? Okay. The Instagram show with, um, what's her name? Tammy Roman from, like, Basketball Wives and, like, anyway. So she's, like, a reality star. She has this, this like, one, she has one-minute clips daily. On, they're called Official Bonnet Chronicles, and she's just rude, okay? <laughs> and basically, she has one where she's like, you know, people ask, why am I always on TV? Why am I always doing this Instagram stuff? She's like, because if you're a media star, then ain't you going to do media? <laughs> like, And she goes on on this whole rat. It's hilarious, I, I suggest. I suggest I will, that. I will check that out. That is I, absolutely yeah. me. I'm always like, you know, Vicky, everyone sees way too much of you. And it's like, well, what, what's your job, though? Exactly. What's your hustle? If you want to get anywhere, is, shouldn't you be everywhere? The if job you're, is to be, you know, visible and to make visible the things that I think are important. So I should probably, you know, be seen as part of being visible, right? You, yeah, I would think so. All right. So you've written for, like, Vice and The Globe and Hazlitt. And uh, who are you writing for now? What What are your latest, like, what are you writing about? Oh, what am I writing about? You know, I'm actually probably right in the middle of, like, my favorite time, which is a long weekend. <laughs> and so for the newspaper, that means that I get a break on Monday, so it's, like, the longest period where I don't have to write anything. Uh-huh. So, like, right now, I'm not writing anything, and that's kind of a nice break. There's not a lot of time where I get to sort of stop and pause and read. I actually read two books in the last few days, so it's just, like, there's a break. Um, so, you know, what what do I write about in a general sense? I write about women and race and gender. What am I writing about right now? 
I'm thrilled to say nothing. <laughs> well, I saw you. Okay, so I saw your Metro piece. Um, and, okay, you're like, which one? Let me just say that I am a Law & Order junkie. Okay. Oh, So yes. now you know which one I'm talking about, right? <laughs> yes. So you wrote a piece in Metro about fashioning the Me Too debate as a Law & Order at an episode of Law and Order Special Victims Unit. And it read as like basically everything up to the court of public opinion. And then they were in the court of public opinion um, where the accusations are tried. But I, I, I thought you were basically trying to say like, yeah, we're here because this is the best we can do right now. Unless I totally read that wrong. No, you're right. Like, you know, part of it was like, first of all, everyone keeps using this phrase, the court of public opinion. Yeah. Like, at the courthouses, there's, like, another dark room that everyone goes into when their court cases don't work out. Yeah. Like, the court of public opinion isn't a real thing. And so it's not a real thing. Let's have fun with it. And I just was like, it's like a TV show to me. Everyone's talking about this, the court of public opinion. Like, not a real place. Um, but it was really just sort of like... This is how it works when, you know, things, people don't get full justice in the ways that they should, maybe in the criminal justice system or within their workplaces or in the environments in which they're asking for accountability. Then it's just up to the rest of us to decide whether these things are credible or worthy or if there's some change that needs to be made. And that's just, you know, the regular process of being people and deciding what's, what we believe and what we don't. Like, there's no, there's no repercussions for the court of public opinion. Like, nobody goes to jail. Nobody has, nobody pays a fine. You just, people decide whether you're good or bad, and we decide that all the time. Yeah, which I find the whole argument of due process laughable, if for that exact reason. Yeah, like, I, so I went to this talk um, this week, and it was uh, Marie Hanane, who's a you know, uh, yeah. criminal defense lawyer and fairly notable for the Jack and Meshi trial. But even she was like, there is no such thing as due process when you're talking about public issues. Due process is something that happens in the criminal court system. None of these cases that we're talking about are going to that level. Uh, so there's no need to bring up due process. Nobody's entitled to due process in public life. You just aren't. You know, like, you don't get, you rarely get due process when you're fired from a job and you're just fired from that job. You're yeah. not entitled to due process. It's, a, it's something that happens in the court system and other types of, like, uh, systems of judgment, but it's, it's really just not a thing that's worth bringing up in this conversation. And the whole thing, too, is I'm going to um, reference the Patrick Brown case, as you did. I saw when you referenced it in that piece. And I, I, I just think of how dare you think that you're entitled to still hold your job when your bosses and the people you serve have lost confidence in you actually carrying out the duties of that job. I mean, people get fired yeah. for less. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's like it's noteworthy to me, and I don't think it has to do. I don't think it has to do as much with the sort of uh, the tenor of this current moment. It was noteworthy to me that within you know hours of CTVs publishing their story about Patrick Brown's uh, and the allegations that he had, you know, coerced women with alcohol when he's a non-drinker and that he's, you know, created, he, he had sort of a specific profile of women that he went after. Yeah. All of his staff easily and quickly left. And these are the people who are closest to him. Mm -hmm. You know, they weren't, they didn't say like, hold on, let's give it a minute here. We've heard some of these things, but some of them are, no, 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 they all left. Mm -hmm. 
Totally. And they all left fairly quickly. And I don't think that's a matter of cravenness on their part. I think I know one of these guys personally, and he loves cravenness. So if he wanted to be, you know, if he wanted to sort of like, <laughs> um, if he wanted to like abandon this mo- this man just because he felt like it wasn't good for his career, like he, this is not how he would have responded. Yeah. He, I think they sort of did like they were like, yeah, no, this all jives and uh, it's come out now, and so we got to go. Yeah. Yeah. I think. We're, we're still missing the part about, you know, asking them, like, how much did you know, though? Because you all left so quickly, like, you were waiting for this. I, no I, one's asked them that question yet. I find it interesting. I think you are in, like, this... Uh, you and their other notable writers of color, um, female writers who are in, like, a very specific space right now that really didn't exist five years ago. And that's this 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 open a more open sort of environment and i say more relative to before to actually talking about race and gender and politics and wrapping it up into culture and like i i know you didn't time it (laughs) like this but how how did you how did you develop into Um, your writing and your perspectives and actually drilling down how you want to write because I also think you have a particularly kind of cheeky journalistic style that I'm surprised gets published in Canada (laughs) because you know come on I'm not talking out of turn I I am I am as surprised as you are every single day every single time I have a dumb idea and they put it in an actual newspaper I have to like, I don't know what's happening here. Someone's messed up. Someone's, yeah. someone's screwed up. I, I, that's a great question. I, I don't think I have, like, a clear answer to how I developed anything. I just, I am, I was bad at many, many, many jobs, and I just couldn't do them very well because the only thing I ever liked doing was writing. Mm-hmm. I'm also, like, an incredibly angry person, and the only way I really deal with my anger is to make jokes about it. Mm-hmm. And so I had... I just happened to find, you know, some real small opportunities and, like, real windows that I could jump into with, you know, my lack of actual organizational talent and some level of writing talent, as well as, like, this deep well of fury that I have, and I was able to take all of that into, you know, into a space, and I found a couple of spaces where they let me do that, let me do this this version of journalism, which is honestly just, like, not not what you should be as a journalist, which is what I am. But yeah, I mean, I I was talking to somebody the other day who we were just talking about how, you know, journalism has changed. And um, you have the rise of the pundit and the opinion piece, which almost, I swear, which drives part of social media in general, right? Um, and I, you know, I've seen places like McLean's and the Globe and Mail National Post, not as much, <laughs> but you know, real um, what you would call, um, let's say, papers of record or journals of record in the Canadian uh, media landscape that are turning to more discussions um, revol- revolving around these cultural issues and these sociological issues I guess and so I I guess you know when I say timing is is beautiful 
it is. Like my dad always yeah. told me that like luck is when opportunity and preparation meet. And so I guess I'm interested in both those pieces, the preparation and whatever opportunities you may have created for yourself. Yeah, I mean, like in terms of the... the As a black piece, woman, like, <laughs> of course. Yeah, I mean, I think like I think in terms of like the bigger piece of like all these papers and uh, being more responsive to issues around race and gender and uh, sexuality, there's sort of two things that I think are happening, which is that like they just realize you know, the internet shows them just how behind they were on a lot of conversations. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that, you know, that really opened up an opportunity that they were like, we actually have to begin to respond to these things. And I looked around and realized that nobody inside those buildings was able to do that. Um, at the same time, I think, you know, a lot of it is, part of it is like the economics of the situation, which is that like, yes, while well, they're paying more attention and allowing more visibility on their papers, those are, those are rarely staff writers who are doing that kind of work. Those are not people who are paid, you know, regularly to be in those places, the spaces or informed conversations. Uh, you know, like there are, as far as I can tell, there are very few black editors with any senior roles across media in Canada t- in total. There are very few Indigenous ones outside of Indigenous-led media. Um, you know, those are not, like, I think they're willing to trade on visibility without actually compensating for the work that got somebody there. Right. You know, when something big happens, they can go to Twitter and find somebody who's sounding off, and those, that person will write a great essay or write a great, um, you know, opinion piece for them. But they're not about to offer that person a job, mm-hmm. mostly because there aren't a lot of jobs. But that's not the first person they're going to turn to when there is a job that, that, that can be filled. Um, so for me, I just, I honestly, really, when I was starting to write, I really just assumed that, like, writing jobs in newspapers were not available to me, and I wasn't going to do them. So why even bother trying to sound like them? And I never really tried to sound like a newspaper writer, mostly, right. like. To be frank, I got kicked out of J school, and I, that's because I was bad at understanding the forms and the systems that they all had in place. I was like, I don't understand why you have to do this in the most difficult and annoying way possible. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, just, I was like, I don't have to do that. I can lead with my personality. I can lead with my stories. I can lead with humor. Um, even when you're writing about difficult stuff, or even when you're writing about you know challenging issues, or you can say that like I'm unqualified to write about this thing and move on and just elevate voices of people who are. Right. Um, so for me. You know, a lot of that was freelancing. Freelancing helped me figure out my voice. I think I wrote, I wrote a piece for the Globe and Mail about traveling as a black woman in Europe that probably I'd go back and say, like, yeah. uh, I'm not sure if I'm the biggest fan of this piece of my own piece of writing. Um, I wrote another piece for Vice about, you know, the, like a Kenyan marriage tradition that goes on around dowries. Mm-hmm. Um, now that I've actually experienced it through my sister's wedding, I would definitely rewrite that whole piece. Like, <laughs> I'm no longer... I'm no longer ambivalent about this whole callous thing. Turns out you get a lot of you get a lot of money when you get married. And anybody who's getting lots of money, I'm so into. Even if it's slightly anti-woman, I'm so into money. So, <laughs> so well, for it. which brings me to the next question: How not how do you personally, but in general, how does one get paid in this new paradigm? Then, how do you get paid? You ask for a ton of money. That's like if you're pitching, I think there's sort of like a the internet in some ways has set people's expectations fairly low about how much money there is. Like the idea that you should get 175 bucks for an opinion is sort of the standard rate people think about. 
you know, if you're doing slightly more work or repeatedly working for somebody, like, I'm a big fan of just doubling how much you ask all the time. Like, I just, I, even when I'm like, I don't know if I'm even going to put this much work into it, I just ask for the money. Because I know that if they, somebody thinks I'm worthwhile, they'll find a way to give it to me. If they don't think I'm worthwhile, then it's easier for me to move on. And that sounds fairly like, that sounds like something that somebody who's got a, you know, strong position in media would say, but I think I, having seen things from the inside and see, seeing who gets paid and who doesn't, more often than not, women of color don't get paid, even though when their voices, even when their voices are the leading ones, somebody somewhere, a newspaper, has a really terrible column, and they're making three times as much as a, as a black woman or a woman of color, well, because they're just, they, 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 they asked for the, they asked for the three-figure sum, and they got it. So, is it, okay, so there... Thank you, because we recently talked about this on the podcast when we were talking about the uh, um, Ellen Pompeo uh, interview in Hollywood Life, I think it was. Oh, yeah. Oh, Hollywood Reporter. Yeah, that one. And um, so is it is one of the problems that we don't ask because we don't because of our mindset? we as black women? I think one of the problems, it's one of the problems it's, that we don't yeah. have. Okay. But the bigger problem is that we're not valued. Right. And so there's, there's an expectation and it's long, it's like a long and historical one that when it comes to black women's labor, it's, it's, it's charitable. We're like, we're helping out. And it's like, no, I went to school for this stuff. I'm not helping out. I have student loans to pay off. Yeah. So like, whoever is paying me to pay off a substantial portion of that. And so undoing that piece is, yes, something we as black women were working on, but it actually takes those systems, they have to learn that they're underpaying black women. And part of that is that, like, they don't, we don't get to share information. There's no access well, okay. given to us. Exactly. To like, we, like, when we talk about pay equity, it's really hard to quantify how much less money, especially in Canada, black women are making because yeah. often we're not given access to the information that would help us quantify exactly what that is. But we know just by looking at who's represented in poverty levels, who's even represented in prisons where we incarcerate people essentially for being poor, and we look at who's taking advantage of certain social services, black women are being undercompensated for their labor. So, first of all, how do you know how to price yourself then? Well, um, I, I always just think that Everything I, every little piece that I write should be worth a million dollars. And so, anytime in my mind, I'm like, I've written 362 pieces of it last year. I don't have 362 million dollars. So, there's, to me, there's a pay gap in my personal work. Uh, so then, I, it's just been a matter of like figuring out what when, when it is I feel like I'm, I'm being paid more fairly, or like when it is I'm closer to matching up that number that's in my head. Right. Not because I think everything is a million dollars, I just think like if I set, set my goal there for everything, then I have to really think hard about why it is I'm not meeting my, why someone else isn't meeting my expectations. Well, it's okay. And so I'm like pricing it out, I just, I tend to think like, okay, well maybe I'm being paid less for this piece because I actually really like this editor and I love working with them, so I'll take, I'll take the, you know, several hundred thousand dollar hit that I feel I'm taking, but that's because I'm the experience is worthwhile to me. When someone's underpay, I actually I'm just at the point where I don't really let people underpay me anymore. So I'm just like, you know, someone out there will pay for this, and if not, uh, I, you know, I have a degree. I can move move on with my life and just keep my writing to myself. But I don't. I cannot bear earning less money for my labor. 
Well, once you start, like I've, I've recently had this experience. I, re I remember, okay, so somebody contacted me to be on a panel and um, I like I asked what happened they so I asked them well what's the remuneration and they were like oh sorry and I was like oh sorry <laughs> like no <laughs> in other words and it was just because not because and the thing is, I, you know, you go through all these thoughts, like, do I really think I'm worth that much? Blah, 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 blah. But I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, I'm taking my time during dinner hour, okay, to go wherever, to say whatever. I will say stuff that's valuable and valued because I pretty much do. And, you know, I, I don't want to do it for exposure. I feel like you know, we're past exposure. That's just me. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, for, I think I'm so glad you just said no, because a lot of it's sort of like you start to make, you start to think of all the trade-offs, mm -hmm. and you start to think, like, maybe it's worthwhile, maybe I'm helping serve, you know, you know, you start to think of, like, all the ways in which it's possibly good, but believe me, like, I, you know, like, white men do not have this conversation with themselves. Dude. They're just like, oh, you're not paying me? That's cool. Let's move on. Dude. I don't need to think any further. I don't, they don't take out any further guilt. No, they don't. Okay, so, okay, so now I'm like, I'm getting exposed to, like, white man's way of, of making money and thinking, and um, they don't give a shit. They're more like, I hope somebody's paying you for your time. I hope you're not doing that for free. I, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm like, you have no guilt. And they're like, no, because, you know, you're taking my time, X, Y, and Z, and it's just bread in them. They're bred to expect payment. They're bred to have, to expect that whatever they put into something will be valued. And I feel like that's the difference. I, you know what? Yeah. I should do a whole special on this. I know it sounds like I am. I really do, because I think this is such an important topic, how to get paid. Just just a topic on how to get paid. Yeah, absolutely. I also think, like, it's worth finding out, like, I've seen little bits and pieces of it from different organizations, realizing that whether, whether without any intention they were underpaying people or they were underpaying specific groups of people and how they make that switch over to realizing it. Like, I think I read this one piece about this guy who sort of, you know, he heard, heard this pay equity conversation and didn't believe it was happening in his company. And then he was like, well, let me do the math on it. Let me just figure out if, if it's true or not. And he figured out that it was true. And the next instant thing he did was when he raised all the women's salaries so it was uh, commensurate with the, with the men in the office. And when people get new, get jobs, he was like, I don't under-offer them just in the hopes of having that negotiation because he, he was like... The numbers just told me that when it comes to the negotiation, women lose out. So why not just give them the money if I have it? If I'm offering them money for a job, I should just offer them the money that there is for that job. Yeah. And it was like, wow, what a huge switchover. Unfortunately, we don't... he had to have this thing but... proved to him, but like, but it, you just... it, it was important. You just, you just brought up an important nuance that what they're proposing to pay you for the job is not necessarily what is available to be paid for that job. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's a really, really important like difference piece that I know 
probably we don't even know exists probably is that yeah is that just because they offer you a certain amount doesn't mean that that's all that's available for that particular job yeah absolutely and i think for me and like my career it like circles back to how the media landscape works which is that like i said they're, they're incredibly willing to engage in conversations, uh, you know, around identity politics or around justice issues. But the money that's offered to people, when I sometimes hear how much people whose articles got like 25,000 reads that are being widely talked about, when I hear how much they got paid for that piece, I am beyond appalled because I know that those institutions have money. And mm-hmm. I know that they have money because if a piece got 25,000 reads and clicks to sell a certain amount, they now at least have that money if they didn't before. Right. So they, they were going to make money off of that person. They just didn't think to give to compensate that person beforehand for it, but they knew that it would be engaging in a popular conversation. So in theory, they could have planned to give more money, which means that that money exists. It's there, and we know that it's there because you look at staff writer jobs, and those people are getting paid you know, between 50000 to 100000 The money is there. It's about whether or not people, people's words and people's ideas and people's uh, scholarship that they bring to these things are valued, and when it comes to understanding value, I don't think our industry has yet, like my industry has yet, sort of like begun to truly understand how they're underpaying racialized people and women. Exactly. So, okay, so I read your Flare magazine piece, your How I Made It campaign. Oh, yes, okay. Okay, so for those who don't know, Flair Magazine, um, in September of last year, interviewed you for their hashtag How I Made It campaign, which celebrates 100-plus talented, ambitious, and driven Canadian women with cool jobs. And this is where I, I, I took note. When asked about what you do for a living, you responded, I write about politics and think about the world, and I hope I'm funny on the way which I thought interesting because you didn't describe your job, you described your work. So how did writing become your work and how did you construct a job out of it? Since we were just talking about pay anyway. Yeah. Like what opportunities did you create for yourself and what advice do you have for especially young racialized women, how to create opportunities for themselves in order to get ahead in whatever industry? Because I think what you have can be applied to other industries. I I, (laughs) will see. Um, I I think like I I there like there are a couple things that were happening, which is that you know I knew you know after a couple years of working in marketing and working for charities that as much as those things responded to parts of what I liked. they didn't really get at what I truly enjoyed. And so I was the person in the office at any job sending, like, entertaining, pissy little emails, but, like, the photocopier. But, <laughs> yeah, like, like the, but the actual job itself was not thrilling to me. Um, and then it eventually just became increasingly clear, especially by the fact that I was bad at it and kept getting fired from these jobs. Um, but I liked the part of the, the only part of the job that I liked was sending those emails and having people be like, wow, what a great email about next week's ice cream lunch. And it's like, uh, well, that's really not a great use of my skills and talents as a writer, but I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> um, so I had been uh, reading this newsletter that used to go around called Today in Tabs, and it was run by this guy named Rusty Foster. 
and basically it was like a roundup of sort of like big news, but mostly focused in focused in on on the tech world and especially how the tech world was engaging with some social issues. And I love this thing. Like it had just it had just this great voice. It was this one guy saying. And he knew a bunch of people in tech from his, like, long years being online. And so it got a fairly wide readership. And eventually he uh, found an intern. So really that intern reached out to him and said, like, do you want an intern for a couple months? I'll just write, like, a little piece, like, a little paragraph every, you know, every day. And then we'll do that for a couple months. Um, And so he had this internship program that he created out of that. Um, and so that intern was Bijan Stevens, who's gone on to be an editor at Wire and has written stuff for GQ and Esquire. Um, and oh, wow. he got to write about race and politics and all this other stuff. And as I was reading it, I was like, what a cool internship. How do I get one of those? And I mm-hmm. sort of went back to being, to being sad about not, not being able to write for a living. Um, and then when Bijan sort of wrapped up his time, uh, Rusty said that he was going to open up these internships. And so another Canadian girl named Karen Cahill was one of his first interns, or one of us was first, but there was a Canadian girl and then there was me. Um, And so we both got to have these internships and it was a really cool time to just like, I don't know, he he was sort of like the first real editor that I worked with on a regular basis. Right. Uh, He just sort of flagged, you know, checked some of my ideas, checked some of my instincts, especially when it came to writing humor. He was a really good editor's humor and so he... Uh, was good at like reframing some of my jokes or rewording some of my lines so they they hit a little harder and so I learned really closely from him how to write better and funnier and sharper Um, and and the thing is like there was no barrier to access with that internship it was just his newsletter and he was like I don't know send me a great email and tell me what you want to write about you didn't have to go to J school which unfortunately I didn't Um, you didn't have to go to J school and you didn't have to have all these things that uh, when you're applying for newspaper jobs, you have to have. Um, so based out of that, you know, I got to write, I got to be seen by a bunch of people, a couple of editors who liked what I was doing there, um, you know, just reached out to me to just say, really great work, love it. If you have any questions, let me know. I was too terrified at the time, so I never emailed them back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, I don't understand why this super important person is emailing me. I'll never talk to them again. And I, and I haven't since. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and then, you know, based on that, I just had a little more confidence going forward. Um, and so, and I'd been running my own little video newsletter that was just for fun about Canadian issues. Maybe like 40 people maximum subscribed to it. And like the, 10 of those were my own family. Um, so <laughs> I, I, I like liked writing and I was doing it and I was putting in some attention and rigor and work into it. And I liked that pace. I liked writing for free or for very little money more than I like doing anything. And so I knew that, like, I just, I like writing, and I know I like writing about Canadian issues, and I know I'm a huge nerd, so I love writing about Canadian politics and keeping up with that, and I like having a lighter take on it, because everything else is kind of dour, like, not everybody needs to be Andrew Klein, and I have no intention to be that person. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and I think sometimes it's unrelatable because you hear the phrase Canadian politics and people's brains literally just switch off. Yeah. But I think it's important. I think there's so much happening and people are don't get any information because it's all kind of wholesome in this serious fashion. Um, I'm rambling. I have forgot your question. No, um, no, no, no. I, I, you're, you're on point because I will pick up from what you just said and just say that... Um, we're, I'm going to pick on Andrew Coyne because he's a perfect example. Um, 
when people think Canadian politics, I think Canadian politics has just been delivered in one particular way. And this way is very broadcasty, or what we think of as the Peter Mansbridge sort of um, a bit haughty mm-hmm. and very rigid and very and not um, not creative or what's the word I'm looking for or agile in terms of how it can um, respond to changing ideas for example yeah yeah. I agree and it's just not and it's it's a little too it's a little too hall monitor (laughs) you know what I mean I was for example let me give an example I was listening to the NDP the beginning of the NDP convention and I kid you not there were 10 or 15 minutes somebody was just speaking about the rules and I just couldn't I couldn't sit there and listen to the hall monitor. I, I felt like my hand was being like slapped because I yeah. was was about to break a rule or something like that. And I'm not even there. And I felt like it made like the ability to sort of reach out and connect with me was lost. And I feel as though that that's like Canadian media in general. They don't know how to connect with the viewer, the reader, or anybody like that. And I feel like that's just more important now. They seem aloof yeah, and removed. Completely. Like, yeah. I, I have loved politics for ages, partly because my parents didn't do anything but watch news. And so it's kind of like a... Oh, like yours a too? Scenario. <laughs> I, became like, I became like a hostage to power in politics. And so like I, <laughs> me I, too. I like, I like locked into a deathly relationship with that show that <laughs> me and that likes me constantly. And so like that's where I was. And then I was sort of like step out into the real world or like go talk to other kids and they knew none of this stuff and they cared about none of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And even as you grew up, I thought like maybe now that we can all vote and people will care more and that's not the, that's not the effect I got but that's because all the people who talk about it are honestly some of the least enthralling people ever and they don't understand how to make this thing personal and personable um, and to really connect what happens in Parliament to what's happening in people's daily lives and I think that's that's like a basic failure of their journalism, but it's also just like that's the way our political journalism has been has been, and no one, few people tend to think outside of that. Um, there are plenty of people who do, so I don't want to like eliminate them. But I just think like that's what, that's what we were getting, and I I was like I have no relationship to that. I think some of these characters are super fascinating. I think some of the weird stuff that they do is interesting. Like I will forever delight at a picture of Tom Mulcair in an Angry Birds costume. Like, <laughs> like I, am, I am a child, and I will keep that photo in my in like my never to be deleted folder for the rest of all time. And that's, none of that diminishes my like none of that diminishes any criticism of him as a leader or his party or anything like that. It just is, and I think we should talk about it. And I think that's fine. Um, and I think we could those things could overlap. I think you can be. You know, these are human beings who run our politics. Why don't we ever talk about them like they're human beings? Um, yeah. And so that's, like, that's really what I always wanted to do, was, like, find these moments and these opportunities. I mean, a lot of it came from university, which I went to school in Ottawa. And so you'd see them as people constantly. And then, you know, you'd hear people talk about them, and you were like, okay, but I definitely saw him getting drunk at a party last weekend, and he was hilarious. Yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah. These are poli- that's who these politicians are, and you sort of get a feel for what they're what their lives are like, which are like both 
incredibly serious but also terribly bizarre and that's really what Canadian politics is it's incredibly serious and terribly bizarre all at once um, and so I like I was always sort of keeping track of these things and hoping to make some jokes on the side maybe occasionally make a serious point that maybe like three people would hear um, and so out of that sort of passion for for writing about Canadian politics and then writing for these newsletters, my own, and for Stay in Tap, I tried to really pitch that idea around to a bunch of places. I was like, let me write this newsletter for you. Like, people read newsletters, people love it, and they love ones with a voice, and, you know, especially when it comes to Canadian politics and talking to young people, like, nobody's really doing it, and everybody said no to me except for Canada Land, who initially said no to me and then eventually forgot that they said no to me and said no to me again. (laughs) Okay, so uh, you you went around and you pitched this newsletter, and basically, oh, yeah. yeah, okay, which is like very entertaining to me because now they're all sort of going. Yeah, I know. This is what I was going to say. I was just gonna say. I was gonna say. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so you were already pitching that, and now they actually want it. I I think that's hilarious. Yeah, I, think that's I was hilarious. like, oh, okay. Well, you guys sort of you missed a moment here, or like you missed. Paying me a lot of money is really what I need. Yeah, I yeah, I know, I know, I know. I sometimes I think, wow, you really don't understand what I'm talking about, do you? Yeah, you know what I mean. Like you just don't get it, and you know. Yeah, they really did, and they were like, "Well, that seems like a lot of work. We'd have to set up an infrastructure for people to subscribe." And I was like, uh, "Mail Trim has already done all of this for you. Yeah, There's not I a lot know. of work to do here." I know. It's like it's not that hard. I feel like yeah I feel like they treat it as though as though it's like nuclear fission and and you're just like no they're like tools for that it's okay yeah I got it it's like there's no real there's 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 a lot of there's a lot of getting in our own way in the media industry that's all I'll say it's like there's a lot of just like saying no on the basis that things are difficult which is let's say fine if you are talking to a child, which is just like children ask for stuff all the time and some of it's reasonable, but you just say no. You're yeah. like, no, nah, that seems, that just, it just seems really hard to make you happy today, so I'm yeah, just not going to yeah, do it. Yeah, yeah, But like, some of the stuff is like, just really shooting yourself in, the own, in, the, in their own foot because they're not willing to, you know, even do a basic Google to find out if your premise is right. You know, so I was like, people read newsletters and someone was like, eh, I don't think that's true. And I was like, Google it. And they're like, eh, let's just say no. <laughs> And you know what the funny thing is? Have you um, have you read uh, the Globe and Mail's uh, newsletter for Women Amplify? Yes, I have. And what's it like? Oh, maybe uh, I shouldn't ask I, that. Uh, I should, I <laughs> maybe read, I shouldn't ask that I've on read, air. <laughs> I've read two. I like them. Um, I think it's a smart choice. But, you know, it's kind of like I'm glad they got there. Yeah. That's all I can really say. It's like I'm glad they got there. They probably missed out on a thing because they weren't there when they should have been. But we're here now, and it's hard to like. It's hard to be upset that, that any time there's like a space being crafted for women. Exactly. Although I must say, like I, I always, I always think, don't don't they know how important timing is? I mean, <laughs> like, dude, like these things don't don't happen forever. Anyway, yeah. I I. You're right. Anytime there is a space created for women. We must. Yeah, because they have like nine newsletters. Like, there's like a morning politics one and an evening politics one, a whole bunch of business ones. And so the idea, like, even the fact that they have a space for women is incredible. 
Um, I was reading, I'm reading, I just got a copy of uh, Liz Renzetti's new book, and she works at the Globe. Mm. And she says the reason she had the column was that initially they had a men's column, and she was, and this was back in 19, in like the 89 or the early 90s, and she was like, it's 19, like, she's like, the entire newspaper is men. Why do we need a men's column? Yeah. And that's how she got her column. And so it's like, yeah, it's hard to be like, oh no, like, you're not the most feminist person, but have a space for women in a, like, wide and terrible place where there's not a lot of spaces for women. Like, I don't think any of those business uh, newsletters by the Globe and Mail are focused on women's businesses or entrepreneurship. That's not what's happening in the business spaces. That's right. Thank you. And I, I say that because I'm going to sum it up like this. Basically, there are lots of spaces that aren't being filled. And sometimes you have to create your own space because you know that space well enough to do so right because once you create that space you're creating it in an image of your own knowledge right so i guess were you to advise you know whomever the idea would be there's a lot of space out there you have to find it craft it and pitch it i guess yeah i think i especially think the crafting part is super important I, i i think it feels and rightfully it feels like we have a limited window of time in which they're going to listen to black women on anything, uh, women as a whole on anything. So like, let's take advantage of this moment. Right. I think, I guess that, I guess that that feeling's there and true, but I see a lot of writers who I can tell haven't had time to really craft out what they think. And for me, it's like, even if it's as simple as a blog or, you know, as like an email chain that you send around to a bunch of friends, Creating your own space where you figure out your voice or what matters to you is super important. The reason we don't have, like, there's plenty of young black people in journalism, but they don't get to, like, figure out their voice. They don't get right. to figure out what they want to report on because J schools tend to crush that out of you. They, they do that a lot less now, but, like, that's what they were, that's what they set up for. Um, but I do think, like, there's so many stories we don't get to tell because someone's voice isn't fully formed yet and they don't know what their interests are. That's so I think, like, finding that, like, create a newsletter, write an email chain, or, like, I know a lot of people take to Facebook. Do it, like, create your own little thing so that when someone comes to you or when you're ready to go out into the world with your idea, you definitely know what it is and what it isn't. Because it's really easy to be swayed and told, you know, have other people tell you what your voice is. And if you haven't taken the time to figure it out, they will tell you and they will pay you less for it and you will feel cheap and smaller at the end of it. Wow. I don't even wow, that sounded deep, and I'm, what? like, kind of impressed with myself. You should be. I was just like, this ain't, like, other interviews on. I'm like, I'm like, this isn't, like, that Blair interview. <laughs> okay, speaking of which, I'm so going to call on that interview because I'm like, I'm like, I, I, I I'm, in, I'm slightly being cheeky with Flair because I'm sort of impressed with the with the um, direction they're going yeah I know they haven't I know they haven't sussed out their voice either but um, I'm impressed at their teen vogue-esque type of leanings so yeah I think like they're doing a great job of talent spotting some like fantastic women yeah Um, and they've like their editorial team has really taken heed of what happened in the aftermath of the appropriations prize which is that like they, they do a pretty decent job of paying fairly well. Their editorial is rigorous, so they're not sending, 
you know, young and racialized women out into the world with bad ideas that have been poorly edited because right. it's been the pattern before now, they're like, they work really hard to make sure that they're part of a conversation, but that they're doing it well and that they're doing it fairly. And so I really appreciate that. And like, as they figure it out and as ideally their bosses understand that this is substantial, maybe it'll transcend, like it'll go upwards into the rest of the magazines and the rest of their media, the rest of their media properties. But like, I'm really impressed with them. And I think they, I mean, they paid me so to be fair, like I'm impressed with them, of course. Um, <laughs> no, but, <laughs> but, but, like, but I, it's true. I, I've like, been watching them. Good. I've been watching them recently and I'm like, oh, oh. And it's not sort of like these cookie cutter kind of debates. I mean, I saw something on the Globe the other day or another publication, and it's like, what is white feminism? And I'm like, really? I'm like over this. But I do realize that other people aren't, right? Other people still have to be introduced to the concept and certain concepts that I, we talk about, you know, daily, right? So, yeah. but I think Flair has gone past a, that cookie cutter type of, of surface discussion and has actually tried to kind of form context around what they're talking about. And I was actually, I'm impressed with them. So I'm going to go back to their interview. And you were talking about how you didn't understand failures. And I just want, like, for the back, to, for you to explain what that means. Correct. What did I even say? <laughs> you said, I, so they're like, oh, how do you deal with your failures? You're like, I don't understand failures. I was like, <laughs> it was kind of a boss response. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. So, yeah. Um, I'll, I guess I don't, I'll read I, it I don't to think you. of things as, my thing is like, I don't think of my many misfires as failures like I, I like I say I think of them as misfires and that like gosh I tried so many things and so many of them do not go well uh and I've I've been fortunate that some of the things that have gone well have been public but a lot of the things that I've tried and have not succeeded at have, have uh, uh they still stick with me let's say um so I feel like I don't like that their question is about like my biggest failure or shortcoming career-wise. I mean, I just have, like, so many of them, so many little shortcomings, like, oh, I should have reported that piece better, or I missed this fact, or I missed this essential point, or maybe I was the person to write this about this topic or this issue. Um, and that's just, like, a constant daily churn. And for me as a writer, I, I it, those are essential for me because I need to have something to grow on. Otherwise, I'm a naughty and arrogant writer. Um, and there's enough Stephen, Stephen Marshes in the world. Um, but, like, I think... For me, I need to and Scott own them as misfires. I need to calling them failures means to me like they were a complete disaster. But you know, I started with something that I was trying. That wasn't a disaster when I tried it. When I was starting it, uh, it wasn't maybe a disaster. You know, when I was thinking about it. So like, not all of it was a huge disaster. It was just I tried a thing and it didn't work out. So okay, so question how has like do you first of all let me ask you this as a black woman woman whatever as a non-white male do you think that your that that has held you back do you think you could have progressed faster do you think you could have progressed further do you not care does it not matter like I just want like a a kind of a kind of 
piece of understanding from your side and from your end? Because especially as somebody who's been able to carve out a niche for herself. Yeah. Um, yes, I think there's many, many times that being a black woman has limited me. Like, I, there's, first of all, there's, like, lots of cultural nuances at, at other jobs that I never understood or even liked. Mm-hmm. Um, I tell people this story all the time but, that I worked at this one charity, and we went out for lunch, and for 45 minutes, they talked about tanning. And like different getting and like getting sunburns and stuff, and I just I had nothing to contribute, so I just sat there, and then eventually lost my mind, and I was like, I love a mimosa, and like I have a mimosa at lunch, and I just stopped talking to these people, and so it was just like uh, that's like I perhaps I should have done like Cheryl Sandberg style leaned in, but like what was I gonna lean into? Like I don't right. know anything. Like I just don't have a lot to contribute regarding various SPS, you know? I yeah. just didn't. And so, like, that, but that, that, that was, like, a cultural thing that, like, I was, like, I just never have had this conversation at length with any black person, so I don't know what I'm supposed to say here. Um, and, you know, like, I was, like, they chose to have the exclusionary chat, not me. So, right. I'm, I'm getting blitzed at lunch. I just, <laughs> and, but, like, but that, but that has, like, that has sort of, like, knock-on effects in that, like, when we get back to the office, they're all still in a good mood, and they're chatty, and they're friendly, and some sort of interesting work opportunity comes up, they're much more likely to hand that off to somebody with whom they've been friendly with mm-hmm. versus someone who, you know, for various reasons, partially to do with my own insecurity, is like, exclude, like was excluded and then excluded herself. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's for sure racialized and gendered in, in many ways. Um, others are much, have more to do with, like, systemic impacts, which is that, like, I still don't yet know how to ask for money for my job properly yeah. or for anything like negotiating is not um, not a skill of mine and I think I, I still struggle with it I'm like trying to learn it and I'm trying to play hardball but uh, still like a thing I don't know how to do um, and then in other ways it's I think it's been in all those early experiences of working and realizing things were racialized and gendered um, oh my god I have this one girl sorry I've just met, I remember this girl all the time she's my literal fucking nemesis she <laughs> she asked me if I could read and this is like at a job where you had to do fairly complex math all the time and she like asked me like genuinely if I knew how to read and I just looked at her and I just left the office I was like I just don't have to answer this question <laughs> Erin like, wants I, to I die like, right now. Okay. <laughs> she's like, she's like the loudest girl too. So like, if it, she was asking me to read, and everyone can hear this, and I was like, is there any version of me giving an answer that worked out well for me? And there's like, nope. <laughs> like, like me loudly justifying that I know how to read, or me saying no, I don't know how to read. Like neither of those work out for me personally. So I just was like, no, I gotta go. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it had been that level of, like, hostility from this person. And, like, in the aftermath, I was like, oh, yeah, she was a bully. And that was uh, a very racialized and gendered thing to do. So Mm -hmm. I'm just... But, like, the aftermath of that is that, like, at present, I'm, like, terribly annoying about those things. Which is that, like, if I think something's bullshit, I just really won't participate in it. And I'm much more apt to call them out or ask other people why they didn't. Um, like working on the Canada Land book, I used to tell my editor, my co-editor, all the time. I was like, "This bullshit 
bullshit things about to happen because I'm a black woman, and if you don't say something, like I, I will delete all your work. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like that sort of changed our working relationship, and that like he was much more apt to step up and say stuff. Um, and so I'm like I'm kind of a pest at this point, which is that like I don't let those I don't end up I don't want to end up telling those stories to my you know like grand nieces and nephews years from now and be like oh yes as a black woman this bad thing happened to me and you know at a stage later on in my career I just really am like it's so not worth it to me to be made uh, into a lesser person especially when I'm trying to do my job and so I'd really rather just like if, I'd rather be escorted out of my building by security than to have anyone speak to me that way anymore well on that note <laughs> on a happy note. <laughs> wow. Speaking of which, it re- exactly what you said it reminds me of like a, um, a piece that I probably will talk about for next week's podcast. But it's like in Wakanda, the women aren't meek and mild or something like that. So they were talking about like Black Panther, the female pretty much um, how they constructed the female characters on Black yeah. Panther and how they're basically, you know, well, black women. <laughs> like, I don't know what else to say except to say, oh, this is like black women, basically. Basically, they don't take shit. Shocking. You know what I mean? And so, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what you just said just just underlines my point. Black women. <laughs> And I mean, like, maybe that feeds into a stereotype, but it's also like, you know, like, I, I, I don't have any other, I don't have any other way of responding, which is just like, there's no winning, you know, like, whether you feed into a stereotype or not, like, there's just no way to win. It's until, true. Like, we, actually, we actually own it, everything. So I was like, if the way of me winning is, like, kind of being, like, an asshole to the people who choose to be awful to me, like, you know, I'm okay with that version of life. There's no, <laughs> there's no, there's no win. Like, whether I'm an asshole or whether I'm super nice, like, I still, I still, ultimately, and, like, once you do the math of it, I kind of lose out. So I'm at least going to, if I'm going to lose out, I'm going to do it on my terms. Like, I just, I don't have, I also, I'm a really impatient person, and I mostly want to go home all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, on that note, (laughs) you know what? This has been great. Like, I feel like, I feel like I got more out of this than I thought I would. And I hope everybody else does, too. Seriously. Because, dude, we talked about money. How many, like, Uh. like how many women on podcasts just blah, 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 talk about getting money and getting paid? Like, how often does that happen? I love money so much. Yeah. Thank you. And and we shouldn't be, like, feel any sort of way about it. And let me tell you, once you start getting paid just to spout your opinion... You'll never look back and you'll never let go. You'll never <laughs> let go. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> All right. Well, you know what? Thanks for joining us. This is Thank you for having me. Where should where can we find you? I am in the pages of Metro, sometimes in the Star, and uh, next month I will be back on Twitter at Vino Chama. Are you off Twitter? Take on a teeny we need a little break. Really? Yeah. Okay. And how's your face? I never, I never get any work done anymore because I'm so excited to watch people fight. <laughs> <laughs> so, wait, wait, wait. I was like, I gotta, I think do some work at this point. Yeah. What, what's your latest, like, petty love? 
you know? Like, like the pettiest stuff, you know. The petty, oh the pettiness that you love. What's the latest? I, oh, no, I have a good one, but I don't think I can talk about it. But it oh, is okay. Like a white man who was bad at his job, and so I, I delight in that. I So do I. I delight at calling yeah. them out, too. Yeah. It, it is. It, it warms my heart. It really does. <laughs> at Vimo Chama, right? Yes, at Vimo Chama. Awesome. All right. Well, we will we will see you on Twitter and talk to you later. Any shout Thanks. outs? Any goodbyes? Um Shout out to black people. I just watched Black Panther, so shout out to all black people. Okay, I haven't seen it yet, so no fucking spoilers for anybody. Damn it. Just shout out to black people is all I say. Yeah, I feel like this is like an Issa Rae moment. I'm I'm rooting for everybody black. I feel like... It's conflicting because the villain's black, and I was rooting for him the whole time. It's like watching Luke Cage. I'm like, I'd be okay with either ending. Like, if he wins... Well, I, I loved, what's his name? Um, now I'm going to mess up his name from, um, like, Moonlight. Ali, what's his name, Ali? Mara. Maharshal Ali. Thank you. I loved him in Luke Cage and was sad when he died. I was like, but 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 I feel like the show's gone now. <laughs> yeah, it was really, he was really good at it. He, I was like, oh, he really was. He was even, was like, like, he was doing it for me. I don't know, maybe yeah. I'm twisted. I just don't think, like, I feel like even when black people are villains, we shouldn't die. I mean, I don't know if that's a fair exception to Carl, You know why? It's because we're, 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 always, we're always decked out in some nice outfits. Uh, we always, always look good. good doing it. That's what it is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Whereas, you know, white villains can look a little pedophilish and creepy. Yeah. Okay, I'm totally, I'm totally going now because this is this is going this is going left. I can tell it's gonna go Wait. left real soon. Okay. We can have we can talk another another podcast episode about Exactly. All right, girl. You have a great right. long weekend, and you too. thanks for coming on. No problem. Thank you. Bye. All right. Bye. Erica, that was a great chat with Vicky. I know. It it I I learned a lot. I'm like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yes, I will charge that money. <laughs> and it's interesting for me to listen to the two of you talk because like I know that you're like you mentioned in the conversation that you are going through this process of learning and discovering how much and what your value is as your business grows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I find that that can be some of the most difficult um, mind changes or mind shifts because um, coming out of the public service especially, so I feel like I have layers, racks on racks of, of guilt for being paid. That are, You know what I mean? Like you have being a woman, then you have being a black woman and not valuing you know, what you bring to the table because everybody's treated you as though you are supposed to be thankful when you're like, no, bitch, I add value to this bitch. You know what I mean? And so um, it's 
it's difficult to change your mindset that way. Um, for me, being around a white guy has helped that a lot. Mm. And I'm not, I'm not trying to be facetious here. I'm serious. Like, the way they think, and not all of them, I'm not talking about every white guy, but if he's oriented this way in terms of business and making money and so on and so forth, and the hustle, he expects to get paid. He just right. expects it. Yeah. They just I, do. And yeah, you did reference your like public service public service career and and yeah, I think that that experience kind of dwarfs your growth in understanding how much quote unquote normal people earn. Right. And the language you need to adapt to to communicate your value and worth because someone else is doing the negotiating for you because you're in the union. Right, right, right. But within that, try negotiating. When's the last time you asked, what am I, you know, about getting promoted, for mm -hmm. example? When's the last time you went to your boss and you're like, look, I've been here two years. I've done what, like, my, my, I've done, I've served my, I've served my time or done my job or done it well or whatever. Um, so let's talk about a promotion. Yeah. You know, how many of us do that? But then again, on the other hand, we're not taught to do that. We're not, we're taught to, to take what we can get as scraps from the table mm. and I'm tired of that mentality. Yeah. It it's just it's not a winning mentality. Yeah, and like it is the onus largely is on the employee to take initiative for that, but I also think that they the employee <laughs> their management structure also has to be um provide incentives to do that and be encouraging of their staff. So like yeah. having managers that say cool, you've done these things and we recognize that you're not going to be here forever. Um, so what do you think you need to do to get to that next level? And is do you see any way that we can provide that opportunity for you? Right. And I, f I feel as though I've only gotten that maybe once. Yeah. And for a short time. Mm -hmm. um, even just, you know, in terms of how training is divvied up. Yeah. Uh, and, and who gets the training dollars spent on them. I can guarantee it's it's men, first of all. Okay? <laughs> like, I can guarantee that. In, uh, in many, many instances, it's men. Mm -hmm. um, so, I, I think what I like about the conversation that we had was I mean, yeah, there's certain things that are specially for black women, but I don't think that the discussion really is that. I think all of us could glean something from it. Mm -hmm. So, which is what I wanted. So I feel like I got what I wanted. And thank you. Thank you, Vicky, for yeah. being just great. Awesome. So as always, before we go, we want to thank Media Style for letting us record our podcast in their space. Media Style is a progressive public affairs agency located in Ottawa, a social enterprise making Canada a better place. And you can find us on social media everywhere. We've got lots of things to say. Well, apparently. <laughs> We're on Twitter at Bad and Bitchy, on Instagram at Bad and Bitchy Pod, on Facebook at Bad and Be Podcast, and send us your questions your email comments, 
we have an advice column. So if you have questions for that, badandbpod at gmail.com. Uh, anything else you want to say, Erica? Um, no. Uh, we have a new website. We do have a new website, badandbitchy.com. Whole bunch of new things there. We've got all of our media appearances. We've got all links to all of our written content. We're going to be starting our own written content for the specifically for our website. So stay tuned for that. That's right. Cool. We have some new stuff coming down the pipe. It's really cool. I'm excited. Yeah, me too. Cool. Bye. 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 Bye.